Well, truly, it was one of the most challenging things that I had to do as a newlywed. And you're wondering right now, oh gosh, what is that? I had this shoebox that was filled with letters, letters and cards, uh, some of them long, some short, some of them to close friends, and some of them were to girlfriends. These were letters and cards to women that I'd had relationships with and friendships with prior to my wife. And what I had to do was to come and to take that box, that's right, and I remember it vividly. We had a dumpster in the parking lot at, at the place where we lived, the apartment we lived, and putting that box in the dumpster. Now, uh, lest you think less of my wife, that's something that we had decided on together. That in view of this new relationship, this permanent covenant, if you will, that was one of the covenant stipulations. It was something that was a demonstration of being able to uh, close that chapter and say that those relationships are permanently over because this relationship is going to be preeminent and is going to be honored. Now, why was I reluctant? Why was that a challenge? Well, because those letters in a lot of ways kind of cataloged or, or were a journal almost of, of the early seasons of my life, of adolescence, of my time at Berea and growing up here at GBC and so on and so forth. Uh, and I'll come back to that in a little bit, but I want to ask this question. When is the last time that you wrote or received a love letter? Now, I will tell you that in two days, we celebrate our 19th wedding anniversary. And unfortunately, it's been a little bit of a while since I've written a love letter. In fact, I was tempted to write one this week just so I didn't have to say that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't think that's a good motivation. So as I said to my wife, she'll have to wait a little longer. Uh, but hopefully I've inspired myself here. But here's the point. Deuteronomy is a love letter. Now, it's much more than that. But it is, as one scholar said, it is a contract set in affection. It is this profound message of God's love. And Deuteronomy presents the Old Testament case that God's love relationship with us is expressed in a set of uh, a framework, a set of expectations, but they're designed for our flourishing. And so we're calling this series, the subtext, as you can see on the screen, is a framework of love for a flourishing people. That's for all the kids' ministry people in the room. We've got motions to remember the series. A framework of love for a flourishing people. And so we're going to come back to that. That's our theme for this series. But Deuteronomy is a lot like the wedding vows of Yahweh to his people. And so we're going to be looking at that. Uh, 16th century evangelist and Bible translator William Tyndale, who gave his life by being strangled and burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English said this about the book of Deuteronomy. He said, Deuteronomy is a book worthy to be read day and night and never out of the hand, for it is the most excellent of the book, books of Moses. And so it's my privilege this morning, my name is Gary, I'm the lead pastor here, to be joined by, to my left, our associate pastor, Zach Stevens, and we're going to be sharing this message together as we introduce this new series. Pray with me and we'll dive in. God, we just give you this morning. We ask that uh, you'd help us to set aside distractions, have soft hearts, and hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we get into the book of Deuteronomy, one of the first questions we want to ask is, what has led up to this point? Who are the people that are receiving this? What is the baggage that they're carrying? What is the, the cultural milieu in which they find themselves? What has led to this moment that as the people of God are about to enter into the land long promised to them, that Deuteronomy is being handed over to them? What got them there? 
Well, let's back up for, for a moment. You go back to Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, and that ends with Abraham's descendants, the family of Abraham, going into Egypt. And while in Egypt, they go there because they were escaping a famine. And in Egypt, they settle and they begin to multiply. And over the course of time, while they're in Egypt, what the text says is that they fell out of favor with the people in charge. Now, for a long time up to that point, there was actually a people that had come in. They were not native to Egypt. They had come in. They had overthrown southern Egypt. They were known as the Hyksos people. And they had a Semitic culture similar to the Hebrews. And they got along just fine. And Israel continued to grow. But eventually, after about 150 years of the Hyksos being in charge, another ruler named Amosis came in, overthrew the Hyksos, and they, not only did they not like the Hyksos, they did not like the Hebrews. And this king, this pharaoh, began to enslave and to oppress them. And that's what we see shaping the people of God in the book of Exodus. In around 1526 B.C., Moses is born. And Moses, one of, the, one of the star players, one of the, 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 the big shots of the Old Testament, Moses is raised up by God to lead the people out of Egypt, to lead them out from under slavery. And as he does that, the people leave hundreds and hundreds of years of cultural baggage behind. Or do they? There's a lot of competing identities going on in the people of God as they make their way out of Egypt and eventually towards the promised land. And one of the things they have to deal with is the Egyptian baggage that they carry along the way. Now, I just want you to imagine with me for a moment, okay? Our country hasn't been around that long. It hasn't been around for as long as they are in Egypt. So just imagine how long would it take to get a whole bunch of people out of Boston to move them to New York and to get them to start rooting for the Yankees and the Jets? How long would it take to move a group of people out of Texas and get them to abandon their guns? I know, spicy. I, I just, I, I, had to, I had to test it out. First service found that more comical than you did. We're not talking about worship or idolatry. We're just talking about culture. That people over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years, they live like he surrounded by Egyptians with Egyptian culture. And so God brings them out and he wants to start, he starts redefining them in terms of who he is and the relationship that he's establishing with them. But it's not just culture, it's also worship. Because as soon as Moses takes the people out and God gives them the 10 commandments, one of which is don't make any images of me. Don't try to portray me with an image. What do they do? They make two golden calves because that's how they did it in Egypt. One of the issues that God is confronting with Deuteronomy is much of the Egyptian baggage that perhaps the people are still carrying when they're being met with the second reiteration of the law. Now Moses takes the people and he guides them and eventually they come up to, for the first time, the edge of the land promised to them. Twelve spies are commissioned, Numbers 13 and 14. Twelve spies go into the land. They check it out. They survey the people. They come back, ten of them afraid Two of them, no, 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 we got this. And so the people don't do it because they're afraid. The second big issue looming in the history of God's people is that for them, God simply wasn't big enough. They had seen God part the waters, but he wasn't big enough to defeat the Canaanites. They had seen God bring manna down from the sky to provide for them, but he wasn't big enough to give them the land. They had seen God bring plague after plague to Egypt and rescue them out from underneath that slavery, but he wasn't big enough to do what was necessary now. 
And it's easy for us to resonate to put ourselves in their shoes because how often do we see God provide in our finances? How often do we see God come through in our relationships? How often have we seen God do his thing in our workplaces only for the next obstacle to come our way and for us to question, ooh, now I should really be worried. Could God really be good enough, big enough for this? These are the issues that loom in the background of the Egyptian people in their history. This is the baggage that they are carrying. And after 40 years of wandering through the wilderness, because when they didn't trust, God said, all right, we're going to let you fade. We're going to bring up the next generation. And we're going to see how they take. And so this next generation finally comes to the edge once more. And God gives them Deuteronomy to reestablish that relationship, that covenant to give them the law. And so Moses is the one who brings this to them. We're just gonna take a moment to uh, pause there. You know, Moses, the very one who was born again, 1526, the one who led them out of Egypt, and Moses takes this down, and, and Deuteronomy itself testifies to this authorship. Deuteronomy 31, a few different verses kind of pulled together. It says, Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi. So Moses wrote down this song and on that day taught it to the Israelites. And when Moses had finished writing down on a scroll every single word of this law, then Moses recited aloud every single word of this song to the entire assembly of Israel. Now Moses doesn't just make that claim in Deuteronomy himself, but we get it attested to elsewhere, first century manuscripts of the New Testament. Jesus ascribes this to Moses in Matthew. Peter and Stephen do it in Acts. Paul does it in the book of Romans. And not just inside the Bible, but outside. Ecclesiasticus and the Talmud, 200 years before Jesus, give Moses the credit. Philo and Josephus, the historian and philosopher, give Moses the credit. Now some people have come along and they've challenged this notion and they've said, well, maybe Moses didn't do it. Maybe when King Josiah discovered the law several hundred years later, he really just commissioned people to write it himself. But there's a problem with that in the archeological record. You see, not too long ago, Hittite treaties were discovered dating to the 13th century. And before these were discovered, people were puzzled about the nature of Deuteronomy, about what went into the structure of Deuteronomy. And when they discovered this, what they found was nearly identical structures from the second millennium BC. And so not only do we have something that attests to the time period of Moses, but the structure which Moses used. So we've looked at the who and the when. Let's continue with what Zach introduced here with the what. And we can go ahead and leave that uh, picture of the Hittite treaties up there. What were the Hittite vassal treaties of the second millennium BC? Uh, Basically, just in short and brief this morning, uh, they were contracts, treaties, agreements between an overlord and his subordinates, his vassals. Uh, And they existed pretty much, uh, without too many exceptions, in in a five-part format consistently throughout. The first is a preamble, a preamble that described the nature of the preexistence of of this ongoing relationship. And that was followed immediately by a historical prologue that cataloged some of the events uh, that defined that relationship historically. And then a set of covenant stipulations. These are the things that would kind of govern the the future of the relationship uh, ongoing. And then after the stipulations would be blessings and curses or rewards and punishments for following that covenant or or choosing to not do so. And finally, there were witnesses 
uh, to that. And there's a few variants to that, but essentially that is the framework of uh, the Hittite vassal treaty. As Zach said, it was found uh, that Deuteronomy bears the same structure. As a matter of fact, as we look at Deuteronomy, uh, the first few verses of chapter 1 give us a preamble describing God's relationship, Yahweh's relationship with Israel. And then there's a historical prologue that in, in a brief form catalogs what we also read. It's repeated material largely uh, from the first four books of the Bible. And then we come to the covenant stipulations. What, what is the relationship between Yahweh and his people going to look like going forward? What does he require of them? This is the law, if you will. And the law is comprehensive in Deuteronomy. It's chapters 5 through 26. It's, it's the large bulk of the book covering economics, family and sexual relationships, religious observances, leadership, justice, food, property, warfare, on and on and on. To some extent, this, uh, the detail of the stipulations... Uh, fleshes out the great commandment of Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And here's how to do it. Others have said it's really the sort of praxis of what does it mean to follow the Ten Commandments in everyday real life for God's people. That's what the covenant stipulations are. And then much like a Hittite treaty, there is a set, uh, as that we'll study later, of uh, blessings and curses. These are the, this is the foundation of which the prophets then call his people to come back to later in the Old Testament history, to these uh, blessings and curses for following the Lord. And then finally, Moses uh, bears witness and talks about succession near the end of the book. And so it's, it's, uh, it's profound that this happened, and, and it's important to kind of recognize and pause for a minute and say, why is this important? What's the significance, and, and why is that important? Well, the Hittite treaties were discovered around the 1930s, and the first scholar to explicitly match them up to Deuteronomy was George Mendenhall around 1970 when he wrote, wrote on this. And one of the things that it does, one of the important reasons in that it's significant, is it verifies the authenticity of Scripture, in particular, of course, Deuteronomy, that, that, this particular book of Scripture. Uh, just last week, Zach answered the question in our uh, Tough Question series, can I take the Bible literally? speaking to the authority, reliability uh, of Scripture. And the Hittite treaties uh, being discovered help us to verify the authenticity of the book of Deuteronomy. We know from the doctrine of inspiration in the Bible, from Peter and other places, that when a biblical writer wrote down the book that they, they wrote, they wrote within a particular cultural climate and context, and they maintained their own personality throughout. They were not automatons of a sort, but they, they wrote in the unique personality time, context, culture, and so forth uh, that they wrote within. That's why Paul writes different than Moses and, uh, and so on and so forth. And so as we consider uh, the book of Deuteronomy, we recognize that it's written within the context and with the form and structure of other writings at the time. And that shouldn't surprise us. It actually strengthens our apologetic argument for the authenticity of Scripture. The second thing that it does, having this structure, helped us to understand that message uh, that we talked about, uh, the message to discern the message of Deuteronomy, that it presents the Old Testament case of God's love for us expressed in a set of expectations, that framework that's designed for our flourishing. Uh, why can we say that? 
Well, because prior to the Hittite treaties being discovered, there were a lot of scholarly attempts to outline the book of Deuteronomy. There was some level of frustration in how on earth is this book to be structured? You can actually read some of these early outlines or attempts to outline. And so when Mendenhall lines up the Hittite treaties, all of a sudden that message of the structure of God's loving relationship being something that was designed for his people to flourish really came to the fore in the study of Deuteronomy. And so those are important reasons. I want to just uh, speak for a couple minutes as we move toward our, our next point here this morning about three characterizations of Deuteronomy as well, three overarching characterizations. The first is that Deuteronomy, as Zach alluded to and spoke about a little bit a moment ago, it's a restatement of the law to a new generation. It's a recapitulation, a, re, a reconstituting of the law that already existed uh, and, uh, and written to the people of God in a, in a new generation. And I want to read a couple of passages out of the text this morning. And, and remember, we'll go, we'll go deeper. We'll dive deeper on these as we, as we preach through the series. But listen to what Moses says about uh, the restating of the law, the establishment of God's law. He says, Now Israel, this is Deuteronomy chapter 4, listen to the statutes and ordinances I am teaching you to follow so that you may live, enter, and take possession of the land your Lord your God of your fathers is giving you. You must not add anything to what I command you or take away anything from it so that we may keep the commands that the Lord your God that I'm giving you today. Verse 5. Look, I have taught you statutes and ordinances as the Lord my God has commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to possess. Carefully follow them for this will show your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the peoples. When they hear about all these statutes, they will say, this great nation is indeed a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God near to it as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call on him? And what great nation has righteous statutes and ordinances like this entire law set before you today? So Moses makes clear three or four times there that what he's about to write as the historical prologue is closing and the stipulations are coming are the statutes and ordinances of the law. They are going to be uh, uh, for the people to, to live by. If you, know, if you went from the last verses of Numbers, the fourth book of the Bible, and you follow the na narrative naturally, you would end up in the first verses of the sixth book of the Bible. That is the book of Joshua, where, where Numbers, uh, the people of Israel are on the plains of Moab. They're ready to enter the promised land. And in Joshua, they go in and actually do that. In the middle of that is Deuteronomy, the restatement of the law, and God calling his people through Moses to obey him. Second characterization, and we'll kind of gloss this one for the sake of time, is Deuteronomy is also a succession narrative. We know this from the end of the book in chapter 31 when Moses says, hey, I'm about to die. Joshua has been commissioned to take over, and here is everything, Deuteronomy, that I've given you for, to know how to live as a people under his leadership now that I'm going away. It is a succession narrative. More we'll say on that later. And then thirdly, as we've already said this morning, it is a love letter. It is a love letter. Perhaps uh, one of my uh, favorite passages, not perhaps it is, but perhaps uh, one of the most profound passages in Scripture is Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 9. Listen to what God says in a book that's about the law, about his people. Verse 6, he says, For you are a holy people, belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. 
But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his gracious covenant of loyalty for a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. Moses wants his people to understand that this is a God of love, that this is a document of love. In fact, Moses recounts almost verbatim the words that God himself gave him when he tucked Moses in that cleft of the rock. Moses had asked to see his glory, and he sees the rear of God's glory, and God says of himself in that moment as he defines who he is, he says, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, and extending forgiveness to the thousandth generation. The message of Deuteronomy to the people is that this is a God of love. This is a contract of love, if you will. Well, what about Deuteronomy and me? What comes to mind in your own personal life when you think about the law? How would you describe your relationship to it, the way that you think about it, ponder it? We got a a psalm, Psalm 19, in which someone does just that. Read this with me. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. And here's, here's the best part, verse 10. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. Now, if you were hard-pressed to pick a food in order to describe the law, I'd be willing to bet money most of you wouldn't choose honey. Maybe broccoli. Maybe like raw broccoli, right? Prune juice. Like I know it's going to flush out the bad, but it's going to taste terrible coming in. I don't know what it might. It's probably not honey. And yet what we see here is that there is something desirable about the law. And we talked about before about the people, you know, the baggage and the history that they brought to the table. Gary went through kind of the structure as God establishes relationship through what we just read through. What I want to point out for us now is as God gives the law, as he reveals more of himself, the people learn about him, but they also get to learn about themselves. That he's giving them an identity of sorts. And not just that, but offering a relationship. Historian John Walton, ancient historian, he points out that for a lot of the different peoples around Israel at the time, that the laws that were in place were often just merely established to establish order. That's not necessarily a bad thing, to establish obedience. And yet the law given to the people, the teaching given to the people, wasn't merely about order, wasn't merely about obedience, but about intimacy. And that's different. We go to Deuteronomy and we see the character of God, we see the holiness of God, we see the love and the justice of God, we see the mercy and the grace of God. And as more of who God has revealed to the people, in the law they are confronted with their true design for a flourishing people. And that design is one born of love. Indeed, as we're starting to see really clearly, uh, Zach and I get the chance to share with you this morning, this is all about love. The overarching theme is about love. And the central character 
like all of Scripture, is God himself. But it's God and his love for humanity. It's God and his plan to redeem us, his plan of redemption set in motion from eternity past. Deuteronomy then, in a sense, is a gospel book. And so as we study this book in the coming months, we'll be on and off in Deuteronomy for about a year and a half, we will approach it looking for Jesus on every page. And so I want to read to you again in just a moment those two verses. I'm just going to excerpt two verses out of Deuteronomy 7. And I want you to hear them this time, not for God's people, ancient Israel, but for you as we answer that question about Deuteronomy and me, Deuteronomy and you. It says this, The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Do you hear that this morning? He goes on, he says, Because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers. How did God keep the oath that he swore to their fathers, ultimately to our spiritual fathers? How did he keep the oath, the promise that he first made to Abraham in Exodus chapter 12, and then to Isaac, and then to Jacob, and then to Joseph, and on and on and on? He did so through the cross of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus and the cross that we come to every time. And you know, last year during Advent, we exploded the, these two little verses in Galatians, Galatians 4, 4, and 5, that really give us the answer to the how did God do that through the cross. Galatians 4, 4, and 5 says, when the time had fully come, what did God do? He sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. That's you and me, that we might receive the adoption of sonship. We're going to move to a time of preparing to, to take communion together. So if you have your cups or if you're at home and you, you have something to represent Christ's body and blood, go ahead and take those out. As we really begin to think about what Jesus did, that is what he did. He fulfilled this covenant promise. And Deuteronomy is this Old Testament case that God's love's expressed to us in a set of expectations, hear this, God's expectations are designed for our flourishing. They're not to bear us down, but they always bring us to the cross. You know, Zach referenced the kingdom of, of Josiah. Much later, after Deuteronomy, in Israel's history, when they had been far from God for centuries, the Bible tells us that the book of the law is found. The Bible goes on to say that Israel's young, very young King Josiah goes and he reads the book of the law in the, in the front of all, the hearing of all peoples and he calls them to repentance and then for the first time in centuries, they celebrate the Passover like they never had before. And you know, there is significant scholarly agreement that it's highly likely that what King Josiah reads is the book of Deuteronomy that day. So it's fascinating this morning that God's people that day in history heard the words of Deuteronomy and then observed the Passover. This morning we hear the words of Deuteronomy and we respond and observe communion, the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, symbolizing Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed. But you know, we do so not to earn his favor, not to earn his forgiveness, but out of a response of gratitude because through Christ, if you have trusted in him, we have his forgiveness. We have his favor. And I want to drive this home with a, a, a quote that I found uh, from a scholar named Ernest Lucas. He's a professor of Old Testament studies in the University of Bristol in the UK. 
And he writes this about the Hittite treaties. But remember that Deuteronomy has the same format. Listen to what he says about the Hittite treaties and keep Deuteronomy in mind. He says, the Hittite treaties are not contracts. They are gifts of grace given by the overlord to define and confirm an existing relationship. The vassal keeps the stipulations of the covenant not to earn favor, but as a response of gratitude for the relationship with the overlord. This is what we do in coming to the Lord's table today. We obey what Jesus called us to do. Do this in remembrance of me until he comes again. And we do it out of a response of gratitude. You know, that's why that day back in 2002, putting that box of letters in the dumpster actually wasn't that hard. Because while it represented a personal history, while it represented relationships that had been important, that the new covenant and the stipulations that went along with that far exceeded whatever I was leaving behind. This is what we celebrate in Jesus, that we have that relationship with him. So I encourage you this morning that if you're a believer in Jesus to take the bread and the cup together, I'll give thanks for both in just a moment. If you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, we'd ask you to wait on taking communion until you get that question resolved. But seek us out, see me, see Zach, that you could step into a relationship of knowing Jesus as Savior even today. Even today. Let me give thanks for the bread. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus who fulfilled the words of Deuteronomy, who fulfilled the message of Deuteronomy, this idea that your covenant stipulations are expressed in such a way uh, that we would flourish as people, and that Jesus, you fulfilled the law, allowing your body to be broken, that we would have forgiveness, that we can live, even as you said, Jesus, life and life to the full, life abundant. And so we thank you for giving your life for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Let's take the Lord's body. Jesus says to the disciples at the Last Supper that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's give thanks for the cup. Lord God, we know that your word says that for forgiveness to happen, the innocent has to die for the guilty. And in the Old Testament, that was animals. And in the New Testament, it was Jesus, you giving your life, shedding your blood for our forgiveness. We thank you for what you've done on our behalf. Thank you for this simple reminder. God, we are a forgetful people. Thank you for reminding us that our forgiveness doesn't come by earning it or being good or going to church, but by trusting that your blood was shed to forgive my sin. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take the cup. There are little holders in the seat in front of you where you can set this if you'd like. We ask that you just take it to the trash can on your way out, if you can kindly remember. We're going to take a moment to acknowledge the generosity of God and pray that he'd bless the generosity of our people. Uh, before we do that, I just, I just want to share in, in Scripture, there's three kind of big themes when God talks about money. And he talks about money more than anything else. And probably because nothing holds greater sway over the average person's affections than their, than their finances. And in scripture, those three things are one, everything we own belongs to God. Two, when we give, we're called to give out of our best, not out of our leftovers. And three, when we give, we give cheerfully, not under compulsion. We tell every welcome aboard class that comes through, God doesn't need your money. 
God doesn't need your money. God could do plenty without you. And that's okay. And so we want hearts to be in the right place. But ultimately, when we give, it's not just the results that it has in the kingdom investment, but we got to remember it does something to us. Because Jesus says where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And so when you put your treasure towards a church, your heart goes with it. When your treasure goes to the kingdom, your heart goes with it. And so this isn't about what we accomplish, but what God does to us. So we hold all those things in the background. And if you're a guest or a visitor, we, like, we expect nothing from you. We're glad you're here. This is a family thing. And so we're going to pray. And if you intend to give today, you can do so through the app. You can do so online. You can do so in the giving boxes on the way out. But we're going to pray together that God would bless this generosity. God, we want to thank you first for the ways that you've been generous to us. Lord, we think about the roofs over our head. We think about the food and or for perhaps some just coffee in our stomachs. Lord, we think about the things that we get to do today as we go off from here because of the ways that you've provided for us, the beauty of fall. Lord, for the people and the relationships. God, ultimately, for the cross, we're reminded of just how generous you are. And so, Lord, as we bring our gift to you, whatever that looks like, no matter how large or small today, God, I ask, God, that you would just bless it. Lord, that it would work in the hearts of your people. God, that it would work in the lives of the people of New London County and beyond. And that, God, you would use it for your purposes. Lord, that your kingdom would continue to grow and that lives would continue to be transformed. We thank you, God, because you are a God of gracious and powerful transformation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.